Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. This season, we're discussing the history of the Mughal Empire. This is episode 8-8, Babur and India. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. Muhammad Zahiruddin Babur, the great-great-grandson of Timur, captures Kabul in Afghanistan in spring 1504. Many of Babur's fellow Timurids were chased out of Central Asia by the Uzbek warlord Shaybani Khan. Shaybani Khan is killed by the Safavids, who then help Babur capture Samarkand. Though he loses Samarkand within a few months, Babur receives critical help from the Ottomans. And with that, let's discuss Babur's invasions into India. The Gunpowder Empires The Gunpowder Empires is the collective name for three Muslim empires that dominated much of Asia and the Middle East. These empires rose to power through the use of guns and cannons, hence the term Gunpowder Empire. Gunpowder was invented in China during the Song Dynasty in the 8th century. The Song Dynasty, as we mentioned in episode 4 of this series, was defeated by the Mongol emperor Kublai Khan. It is impossible to overestimate the impact the Mongol conquests had on the Muslim world. In addition to destroying the Abbasid Caliphate, all of the gunpowder empires owe their existence, at least indirectly, to the Mongols. There were three gunpowder empires. The Ottoman Empire, the Safavid Empire, and the Mughal Empire. Let's do a brief sketch of each of these empires. First, we have the Ottoman Empire. This empire was ruled by the Osmanlu dynasty, which was founded by Osman Ghazi. They were predominantly Sunni Muslim and lasted from 1281 to 1922. The origins of the Ottoman Empire begin in Anatolia with the downfall of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. The Seljuk Sultanate of Rum's downfall began when they were defeated by the Mongols in 1243. From the fragmentation of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum came several independent beyliks. One of these beyliks was the Ottoman beylik, which eventually grew to the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire expanded beyond Anatolia and crossed over into the Balkans. The Ottomans were already using gunpowder as a weapon by the 1400s, especially cannons. In fact, cannons played a key role in the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople in 1453. The Ottoman Empire also utilized an elite military corps known as the Janissaries. The Janissaries were the backbone of the Ottoman military and often fought using handheld firearms. The Ottoman Empire would eventually cover much of the Middle East, North Africa, and the Balkans. 
The second gunpowder empire was the Safavid Empire. The Safavids began around 1501 and lasted until about 1733. The Safavid dynasty was founded by Shah Ismail. They followed the Shi'i Twelver sect and were ethnically Persian. The Safavids also owed their existence, at least indirectly, to the Mongols. The Mongol invasions encouraged, or sometimes forced, Turkic people from Central Asia to migrate south into Persia, Anatolia, and the Middle East. The Safavids initially only controlled Azerbaijan, but they allied with various Turkmen groups, many of whom had been displaced by the Mongols and began conquering Persia. From there, they went on to conquer Baghdad, Mosul, and parts of Kuwait, Pakistan, and Afghanistan. By the way, Turkmen are people from Turkmenistan. As we mentioned, the Safavids were a Shiite dynasty. Before their ascendance, most of Persia was Sunni Muslim. But the Safavids declared Shiism as the state religion and based their laws and worship around Shiite traditions. They also forced mosques within their territory to follow Shiite practices. The Safavids also had their own elite units called Ghulams, which were similar to the Ottoman Janissary. Finally, we have the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire was founded in 1526 and lasted until about 1857 or so. As we know, and as we are discussing right now, the Mughal dynasty was founded by Babur and was predominantly Sunni Muslim. However, most of their subjects were Hindu. And yes, the Mughals also owed their existence to the Mongols. By the early 1300s, the Mongol Empire had fragmented into four different khanates. We mentioned them earlier in this series. They were the Golden Horde, the Chagatai Khanate, the Yuan Dynasty, and the Ilkhanate. The Ilkhanate was swallowed up by the Timurid Empire, which covered much of Central Asia, Persia, and the Caucasus. Timur himself was ethnically Mongol and fashioned himself as a Muslim Genghis Khan. Oh, and by the way, Timur was the great-great-grandfather of Babur, and Babur's mother was a direct descendant of Genghis Khan. So now that we have a basic understanding of the gunpowder empires, let's discuss Babur's raids into India. Probing Raids into India Babur now had Kabul and Afghanistan, but wanted to expand his holdings and find more adventure. By this time, he was beginning to see that moving eastward into India seemed like the best choice. But first, Babur wanted to conduct small, probing raids into India to assess the situation and gauge the response. In 1519, he marched out of Kabul towards the Indus River, which was considered the traditional boundary of India. 
Before crossing into India, Babur attacked the city of Bajar near the modern border between northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. The attack on Bajar took place in January 1519. Babur's forces used matchlock guns and ballista. Matchlock guns, as discussed in the previous episode, have a slow-burning fuse that's attached to a metal clasp, which is controlled with a trigger mechanism. Gunpowder is placed in the breech of the gun, and a metal or steel ball is fed into the muzzle. Pulling the trigger dips the metal clasp holding the burning fuse into the gunpowder in the breech. The gunpowder then explodes, firing the metal ball from the muzzle towards its target. This type of weapon, a handheld firearm, was unknown in India at this time. The defenders of Bajar were not familiar with this sound, but they were not afraid of it either. In fact, they mocked and made obscene gestures at the sound that they made. But nobody was laughing when Babur captured Bajar within one day. Babur ordered all of the men in the city executed and the women and children taken as slaves. This was somewhat strange considering that Babur was fighting Muslims. And while it's not strange for Muslims to fight each other, it was kind of strange to take the women and children as slaves. When two Muslim forces have conflict, it is not uncommon for the victor to execute their enemy's remaining soldiers. It doesn't always happen, but it was common enough. But it was very rare that Muslim women and children were taken as slaves. Islam specifically prohibits enslaving other Muslims. A Muslim simply cannot enslave another Muslim. Babur justified these bizarre actions by accusing the people of Bajar of having un-Islamic practices and customs. Allah knows best how accurate these accusations were. The next day, the Sultan of Swat in northern Pakistan came to pay homage to Babur. He was effectively submitting to Babur as a vassal. With Bajar defeated, Babur continued his journey into the Indian subcontinent. He crossed over the Indus River near Atak, which is also in modern-day Pakistan, halfway between the modern cities of Peshawar and Islamabad. He continued on through what is now Islamabad, traveling through a large salt range on his way south to Behera. Behera is about 90 miles south of Islamabad. When he arrived at Behera, the nobles came out to greet him, and the nearby town of Khushab sent an envoy to accept Babur's suzerainty. Just a little side note here about the city of Khushab. Kush means happy or good, and Ab means water, so Khushab means good water. Babur then sent an envoy to Sultan Ibrahim Lodi, who held the self-important title Emperor of India. Babur demanded Sultan Ibrahim Lodi surrender all the areas that had been captured by Timur 130 years earlier. Babur claimed these lands that had been captured by his ancestor were rightfully his. This was, of course, a very dubious claim. When Timur came to India, he pillaged and killed and then he left. 
He did not try to conquer anything. He did not leave behind any lieutenants or governors to rule India in his name. He just came, killed a bunch of people, plundered, and then left. So Babur's claims to these lands were unrealistic at best. Babur's envoy to Sultan Ibrahim Lodi was held captive by a man named Daulat Khan, who was the governor of Lahore, and he refused to reply to Babur. When Babur did not receive any response, he began the long trek back to Kabul, finally arriving back home in April 1519. Babur's conquest of India was just getting started, but it would be another six years before Babur attempted another invasion of India. After Babur left India, his new vassal state, Khushab, was attacked by Afghans and Indians. Babur's governor of Khushab was forced to flee back to Kabul. While Babur was in India, one of his wives gave birth to another son named Hindal Mirza. Hindal means the taker of India. Babur gave him that name as a good omen. Hindal's birth mother was named Dildar Begum. Babur's favorite wife, Maham Begum, was the mother of his eldest son, Humayun. However, she had lost three children after Humayun. When Dildar Begum got pregnant, Maham Begum asked Babur to give her the unborn child. She didn't care if the child turned out to be a boy or a girl. She just wanted to raise it as her own. And so when Hindal was born, he was taken from his mother Dildar and then given to Maham Begum to raise. Babur's Second Invasion of India The Lodi dynasty that was currently ruling the Delhi Sultanate was an Afghan dynasty founded in 1481 by a man named Bahlol Lodi. Bahlol Lodi was succeeded by his son, Sikandar Lodi, who was a very capable leader. Sikandar Lodi died in 1517 and his son, Ibrahim Lodi, ascended the throne. Ibrahim Lodi was nothing like his father. He was very arrogant and ill-tempered, and it wasn't long before Ibrahim Lodi had a rebellion on his hands. The provinces of Bengal, Malwa, Jampur, and Gujarat all broke away, while two other provinces, Ud and Bihar, both rose up in rebellion. Daulat Khan, that's the governor of Lahore who was holding Babur's envoy captive, also decided to rebel against the Delhi Sultanate. He was joined by Ibrahim Lodi's uncle, Alauddin. Both men reached out to Babur for help, with Daulat Khan sending him 20,000 gold coins to help with the decision. Ibrahim Lodi had yet another problem to deal with. Rana Sangram, also known as Rana Sangha, was the Rajput king of the Sisodia clan. The Rajputs were a predominantly Hindu warrior caste in India. The Sisodia clan ruled over Mewar. Mewar is in the southern part of the modern Indian state of Rajasthan near the border of Gujarat. 
Rana Sangha wanted to expand his territory at Ibrahim Lodi's expense. So he also wanted Babur's help in fighting the Lodi dynasty. If Babur decided to help, Rana Sangha did not expect him to stay in India. He expected Babur to do what his ancestor Timur had done, kill, plunder, and leave. If Babur did this, it would leave India open for Rana Sangha to conquer. In fact, Rana Sangha was hoping to revive Hindu rule in India led by the Rajputs. With so many people asking and begging and bribing him to invade India, Babur finally set out in November 1525. Along the way, his 17-year-old son, Humayun, joined him. On December 9, 1525, Babur crossed the Indus River and was back in India again. He sent a message to one of his military commanders, a man named Alam Khan, to join forces with Daulat Khan and his son, Ghazi Khan. Their instructions were to wait for Babur to arrive, then join him at Sialkot, a town in western Pakistan near the Kashmir border. Another side note, Sialkot comes from the word Sial, which is a tribe in the Punjab, and Kot, which means fort. So Sialkot means Fort of the Seals. Babur's plan was interrupted when he received news of an Uzbek attack on Balkh. He rushed back to Afghanistan to defend Balkh from the Uzbeks, leaving Alam Khan, his military commander, to continue the invasion of India. Alam Khan took his remaining forces and joined with Daulat Khan to move against Ibrahim Lodi. They marched on Delhi and laid siege to the city. Ibrahim Lodi, meanwhile, brought out his own army, which included elephants, to drive off the invaders. Eventually, Alam Khan had to break off the siege and run for his life. After this defeat, Daulat Khan and his son Ghazi Khan turned against Babur just like they had turned against Ibrahim Lodi and began gathering forces against him. By this time, Babur had returned from Balkh, so he marched to meet Daulat Khan and his son. The two sides met with Babur emerging victorious while Daulat Khan and Ghazi Khan fled the battlefield. Ghazi Khan fled into the mountains and Daulat Khan sought refuge in the Malut Fort in the Punjab. They were now on the run from both Babur and Ibrahim Lodi, both of whom wanted their heads. Eventually, Daulat Khan decided it was safer to surrender to Babur and beg forgiveness for himself and his son. With that rebellion taken care of, Babur continued his march on Delhi. This was Babur's fifth attack on India, but his first time facing Ibrahim Lodi or going against the Delhi Sultanate. As Babur closed in on Delhi, he learned that Ibrahim Lodi was leading an army to meet him at the same time. He also received intelligence that Hamid Khan, the provost of Hisar, was coming to fight him as well. Hisar is a city in northeast India about 75 miles east of Delhi. 
Bob Orr sent Humayun to deal with Hamid Khan, and Humayun defeated Hamid Khan in February 1526. On April 12, 1526, Bob Orr made camp near Panipat, about 40 miles north of Delhi, and prepared to face Ibrahim Lodi. To Babur's right was the town of Panipat. To his left were his soldiers, trenches, and defensive structures. And between them were the open fields leading to Delhi. Babur's men created makeshift defensive structures by tying 700 carts together with ropes. Master Ali Kuli placed his matchlock men with their guns behind this temporary fortification. Babur's army was relatively small with only about 12,000 soldiers. Ibrahim Lodi's army reportedly consisted of about 100,000 soldiers and a thousand elephants. But Babur had better technology. He had guns and he had cannons. Ibrahim Lodi, with his numerical advantage, was in no hurry to attack. After all, Babur came to India to fight him, not the other way around. Babur had to find a way to force Ibrahim Lodi to go on the offensive. So he began sending raiding parties to attack the enemy's camp. And eventually, it worked. The Battle of Panipat On Friday, April 20th, 1526, Ibrahim Lodi's army marched out to attack Babur. As the distance between the two forces closed, Ibrahim Lodi's army began to lose formation, breaking rank and wandering all about. Babur took advantage of this lack of discipline, ordering his archers to shower the enemy with arrows from all sides. Despite this onslaught, Ibrahim Lodi's army pushed on until they ran into the proverbial brick wall. Once they were within range, Master Ali Kuli's matchlock men began firing deadly volleys at the enemy center. With each volley, hundreds of men dropped at once. And then came the deal breaker. With the matchlock guns laying down deadly fire, Babur's cannons, set deep behind the front lines, began blasting the enemy. Ibrahim Lodi's army did not possess any firearms. As mentioned earlier, there weren't many guns or cannons in India at this time. Babur's cannons were very loud and spooked Ibrahim Lodi's elephants who had never heard these sounds before. With the elephants taken out of the equation, Ibrahim Lodi's primary advantage was gone. Now, Babur's left and right flanks began closing in on the enemy, pushing them into a tight squeeze, making it difficult for Ibrahim Lodi's men to either fight or flee. Before long, they were routed and the battle was over. The Battle of Panipat, as it became known, was over relatively quickly. It started in the late morning and was over by noon. An estimated 16,000 men were killed, mostly from Ibrahim Lodi's side. 
Ibrahim Lodi was also killed and his head was presented to Babur after the battle. This battle is considered the official beginning of the Mughal dynasty. Four days later, Babur entered Delhi as its new ruler. And just as he always did for any city he conquered, he took a tour of Delhi. He visited the various tombs of famous people. For instance, he visited the tombs of Nizamuddin Aulia and Khawaja Qutbuddin Khaki, both famous Sufi sheikhs of the Chishti Tariqah. He also visited the tombs of previous Delhi sultans. Then he went to have the khutbah read in his name. As we have mentioned many times before, this was a traditional practice of Muslim rulers establishing their authority. While these things were significant, the most important objective for Babur was to take control of the treasury, and he made sure that happened. Babur's son marched onto Agra, which is about 100 miles east of Delhi in the modern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh. Humayun's job was to capture the royal family along with their allies. The purpose was not necessarily to harm them. Capturing the royal family was to ensure none of them tried to rally the people behind them or prop up a new prince as the true sultan of Delhi. Humayun prohibited his soldiers from plundering Agra, though he did accept gifts from the royal family. Among the gifts Humayun received was a large diamond now known as the Kohinoor. Kohinoor is a Persian word meaning mountain of light. Koh means mountain and Noor is the Arabic word for light. Humayun presented the Kohinoor to his father who kept it for a while but soon returned it. It seems Babur wasn't particularly impressed by this diamond. The diamond would go on to pass through several hands. From Humayun, it went to the Safavid ruler Shah Tamasp. We'll discuss this story later this season in episode 12. From Persia, the diamond passed on to the Nizam Shahi dynasty of the Deccan Sultanates. It made its way back to the Mughals with Emperor Shah Jahan. And then it went back to the Persians when Nadir Shah founder of the Persian Afshari dynasty, attacked Delhi in 1739. The diamond then went on to the Sikh ruler, Ranjit Singh, who then turned it over to the British when they annexed the Punjab in 1849. Today, the Kohinoor diamond sits in the Tower of London from where nothing ever escapes. That will do it for this episode. In the next episode, inshallah, we will discuss Babur's war against the Rajputs. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. You can support the Islamic History Podcast and get exclusive content by subscribing to our premium channel, Islamic History Exclusive. If you have an Apple device, you know, iPhone, iPad, or any Mac computer, Open the Apple Podcast app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. If you prefer to use Spotify, simply open the Spotify app and, again, search for Islamic History Exclusive. 
You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic history. If you'd like to know what you'll be hearing on Islamic History Exclusive, just stay tuned for a brief clip from one of our premium series. Also, be sure to follow Islamic History Podcast on YouTube and TikTok for additional content. And finally, as always, special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Siroj for his research and support of the show. And thanks to all of our premium subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season two of the Umayyad Caliphate presented by Islamic History Exclusive. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail, and this is episode 2-8. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. The Umayyads have expanded their authority into North Africa the Umayyad Caliphate now stretches almost to the modern borders of Morocco. Hajjaj ibn Yusuf dismissed Yazid ibn Muhallab, replacing him with his brother Mufaddal ibn Muhallab. Musa ibn Abdullah, the son of Abdullah ibn Khazm, captures Tirmiz and rebels against the Umayyads. Alright, so with that out of the way, let's get started with the show, but first... Very, very quick apologies for this episode. I know I usually put out a new episode every Monday for the Umayyad Caliphate, but last week, the last couple of weeks actually have been very busy. First, I had some oral surgery on Monday, last Monday, and that basically wiped me out for two days and I couldn't really do much of anything for a while. And then on top of that, I had to give a khutbah this past Friday. That was February 18th. And I spent almost two weeks preparing for that. So because of all that, I'm a couple of days late on this episode. But inshallah, going forward, we'll, you should get the rest of this season every Monday. Hopefully. We'll see. If you are interested in watching or hearing the khutbah I gave last Friday, it is available on YouTube. Just go to islamichistorypodcast.com slash 434 and you can hear the entire khutbah there. It is not at all related to Islamic history, but it is, it is about a very important topic, important to all of us Muslims. All right, so let's get into the discussion of the Umayyad Caliphate. Let's begin by discussing the downfall of Musa ibn Abdullah. Now, as we mentioned, Musa ibn Abdullah, he was the son of Abdullah ibn Khazm. Abdullah ibn Khazm, or just ibn Khazm, was uh, ibn Zubair's former governor of uh, Khurasan before the Umayyads took over. We discussed in episode 2-6, I believe, episode 6 of this season, how Musa ibn Abdullah rampaged through Central Asia, uh, Transoxiana, as, as it is sometimes called, and eventually wound up taking over the city of Tirmiz in Uzbekistan. 
Now, the downfall of Musa ibn Abdullah is a very convoluted story, so I won't go into the details. I'm just going to provide the important events. But there's a lot of minor details that Tariq Tabari mentions that had I gone through, through all of them, we would probably spend three, three episodes discussing what is probably a fairly minor event in the broad scope of the Umayyad Caliphate. So I won't spend too much time on it. Well, I am going to spend most of this episode on it, but I'm not going to get into all the dirty details of this um, episode, of this event. All right, before we get into that, let's go back a little bit to 77 AH, just to remind you of where we are. In 77 AH, which would have taken place in the first season of the Umayyad Caliphate, the governor of Khurasan, the Umayyad governor of Khurasan, a man named Umayyad ibn Abdullah, sent an army mostly made up of soldiers from the Khuza'a tribe, to fight Musa and take Jermiz. The Khuza'a are from South um, Arabia, Southern Arabia, pretty much Yemen. But of course, their people migrated north to many places, and many of them settled in Iraq, and so now they're spread out all over the place. Even by this time, um, even by this time of the Amaya Caliphate in 77 AH, they had spread very, very far even by then. But their origins are in are in southern Arabia, primarily Yemen. So Umayy ibn Abdullah sends this army of the Khuza'a tribe to fight Musa and take Tirmiz away from him. When the locals, the local Turks or Uzbeks living in this region, I don't know if they're Uzbeks, known as Uzbeks by then, Atabadi calls them Turks, so I'm just going to call them Turks also, but they were definitely some sort of Turkish, maybe slash Persian type of people, Maybe perhaps Turkish in ethnicity and maybe Turk, uh, Persian in culture. Allah knows best, but I think they're mostly Turkish, um, ethnically speaking, and lingu linguistically speaking as well. 